Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, 2 Samuel chapter 5, continued. told you at the beginning of our last lesson that 2 Samuel chapter 5 is flowing over with information and issues that are easy to just rush right by. But they're quite important to our overall progression through the Bible and thus we're going to make a few detours to help explain matters. So we spent a great deal of time last week discussing and defining terms for that ancient city that most represents Israel, and that's Jerusalem. Now we learned that the oldest known name for this place is Yerushalayim. And that surprisingly, it's not a Hebrew, but Akkadian name. And the term Yerushalayim was represented in clay tablets found in northern Syria in the late 1960s and and early 70s. And these tablets were written in the Akkadian Akkadian language about 4,500 years ago, or about 500 years before the time of Abraham. Now, meaning something like the foundation of the god Shalem, A shortened name for this city was Shalem. And we find that this is the name of the place, or at least one of the names, that was in use at the time of Abraham's encounter with the mysterious king and priest Melchizedek. Further, a a clan or a tribe named Yevus, Jebus, eventually conquered or built up Yerushalayim and a and walled off a section of it. Um, So Yevus and Yerushalayim were both common names for this place and in use at the same time. The walled off section, the Jebusites called Zion. It was this walled off section that we find David and his private army conquering in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and then renaming it the city of David. And since David took Zion with his own men and didn't involve the national tribal troops, he felt free to assign a personal name to his new capital, the city of David, because in fact this became his private estate. We need to get the picture that Yerushalayim was the name for the general area. City of David was merely the name for the walled city that resided on just a portion of this whole area. The area, by the way, that lay downhill on the southern slope of Mount Moriah, which is up at the top. So the city of David was not synonymous with Yerushalayim. And as we go forward in the Bible, we need to keep this in mind. We're going to revisit this subject as we arrive at the time of King Solomon building the first permanent temple for Yehovah atop the crest of Mount Moriah, which is located, of course, as you see, outside the city of David. 
Let's reread a portion of Second uh, Samuel chapter five to get our bearings for today's lesson. We're going to start reading at verse six, page three three nine. If you have a complete Jewish Bible. The king and his men went to Jerusalem to attack the Yevusi, the Jebusites, the inhabitants of that region. <clears throat> and they taunted David, You won't get in here. Even the blind and the lame could fend you off. In other words, they were thinking, David will never get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, Zion, also known as the city of David. And what David said on that day was, in order to attack the Jebusites, you have to climb up from the spring outside the city through the water tunnel. Then you can do away with these so-called lame and blind, whom David despises, hence the expression, the blind and lame keep him from entering the house. Now David lived in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David. And then David built up the city around it, starting at the Milo, and working in, inward. David grew greater and greater because Adonai, the god of armies, was with him. Hiram, king of Zor, sent envoys to David with cedar logs. And with them were carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. David then knew that Adonai had set him up as king over Israel and increased his royal power for the sake of his people. David took for himself more concubines and wives in Jerusalem after coming from Hebron so that still more sons and daughters were born to David. Here are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem: Shamwah, Shobav, Natan, Shlomo, Yifchar, Elshua, Nepheg, Yafya, Elishma, Eliada, and Eliflet. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David. And on learning of it, David went down to the stronghold. The Philistines came and deployed in the Rephaim Valley. David consulted Adonai, asking, Should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And Adonai answered David, David Attack. I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Pratzim and defeated them there. He said, Adonai has broken through my enemies for me like a river breaking through its banks. This is why he called the place Baal Pratzim. The Philistines had left their idols there, so David and his men took them away. The Philistines came up again, deployed in the Rephaim Valley. And when David consulted Adonai, he said, don't attack. Circle behind them, engage them opposite the balsam trees. And where you, when you hear the sound of marching in the, tree, in the tops of the balsam trees, advance. Because then Adonai has gone out ahead of you to defeat the army of the Philistines. David did exactly as Adonai had ordered him to do and pursued his attack on the Philistines from Geva all the way to Gezer. Starting in verse 6, we get a very brief account of the conquering of the Jebusite-held walled city of Zion. And so we get frustratingly little detail that is so typical of biblical narrative when it comes to battles. Now the thing that's striking about this event is that the writer of this narrative focuses 
on the apparently insulting words that the Jebusites hurled at David from the safety of their massive fortress walls and from David's side the clever means that David uses to gain entrance into that stronghold. Now let's start with the latter first. It seems that David used a water tunnel to more or less sneak his men into the city. Now this tunnel, really more of a shaft, was first rediscovered um, in the modern age by Sir Charles Warren in 1867 and has been aptly named Warren's Shaft. It neatly verifies the biblical account of David's conquest of Zion. Now here we're going to take another detour. Because this will not be the last time that the water system of Jerusalem plays a pivotal role in history. Now as an archaeology buff, I I find this stuff fascinating. And I hope you will as well. Now the city of David was built on a hill of hard limestone in which underground water formed natural caves. The Gihon Spring is the only source of water for this city. And it emerges in the Kidron Valley on the east side of the city of David. It's mentioned many times in the, uh, in the Bible. And this valuable water source is what made the founding of the city of David, formerly Zion, possible. And it sustained its existence for thousands of years. The Hebrew name of the spring, Gion, right, is derived from the meaning to gush forth. It's a verb, to gush forth. Okay. And that reflects the rapid flow of this spring, which does tend to vary with the seasons of the year and the amount of annual rainfall. Now, this particular spring operates in a fascinating way. First, the water accumulates in an enormous subterranean cave that that behaves as a cistern, a a water reservoir. Then it fills to the brim, and then once it does that, it empties through cracks in the rock by means of capillary action that siphons the water upwards to the surface. And this natural feature made it necessary to accumulate the water in a pool. Particularly so there would be water available in seasons when the spring wasn't gushing forth. Well, the Gihon Spring emerged in a cave on the eastern slope of the city of David above the Kidron Valley. And over the centuries, the various inhabitants of the walled city found it important to protect their water supply from enemies and and to increase the amount of water available so that the population could grow. Therefore, three different man-made water systems fed by the Gihon Spring were carved into the rock beneath the city of David. And they are the most complex and advanced of any known from the biblical era. Now, all three systems were in operation simultaneously. 
during the first temple period, and each of them contributed to the efficiency of the city's water supply. They also attest to the efforts of the kings of ancient Jerusalem to guarantee the water supply in times of siege. Now, in times of war and siege, the city's water water supply was vulnerable since the Gahon Spring in the Kidron Valley was outside of the city walls. And various means, including these tunnels and shafts, were designed to solve the problem. Now, what is today called Warren's Shaft is the earliest of these subterranean water systems. And the entrance to Warren's Shaft system is located in the middle of the eastern slope of the city of David inside the ancient city's walls. It consisted of a subterranean rock-cut tunnel with a shaft at its end. Here here you see Warren's Shaft. And the entrance, at the entrance the tunnel slopes steeply downward in in, in a stepped passage. But all of this leaves us with the question, how did David's men get inside this water shaft if the shaft was located inside the city walls? And this question has caused many scholars to question either the reliability of this account in 2 Samuel or to wonder if the translation is correct. But let's leave that matter open while we take the time to understand how the water system was expanded in later times. The next facility to be built is called the Salome Channel, or it's also known today uh, at the site as the Canaanite Tunnel. And it was cut at the beginning of the second millennium B.C., and it emerges from the Gihon Spring and extends approximately a, a quarter of a mile southward along the low eastern slope of the city of David around the city's southern end and then it empties into a reservoir. The channel's northern part is three feet deep. It's covered by large stones. The southern part is open, but it becomes a rock-cut tunnel towards the end of it. And openings all along this channel allowed water to flow out for the purpose of irrigating the terraces on the eastern slopes of the city of David. That's because these were David's private gardens. And we read about those in the Bible. Now the third and last water system to be constructed goes by a name that's pretty familiar to us. Hezekiah's Tunnel. The tunnel was cut during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah around the end of the 8th century B.C. and described in detail in a six-line inscription that was written in a very early Hebrew script and it was cut into the rock at the entrance to that tunnel. And, and let me read it to you because it's interesting. And it starts halfway through a sentence. That's all that remains. It says, Breakthrough. And this was the account of the breakthrough. While the laborers were still working with their picks, each towards the other, and while there were still three cubits to be broken through, that's probably around five feet, 
The voice of each was heard calling to the other because there was a crack in the rock to the south and to the north. And the moment of the breakthrough, the laborers struck each toward the other, pick against pick. And then the water flowed through from the spring to the pool for 1,200 cubits. And the height of the rock above their heads was 100 cubits. So they were really down low underneath the surface. Now it is the most impressive of the water systems built in the city of David. This tunnel was cut into the rock beneath the city of David for over a half a mile in an S-shaped course. But even more, in order to hurry to finish this tunnel, it was dug from each end and they managed to meet in the middle perfectly. Which is why you have this inscription because they were probably pretty amazed at it too. (laughs) My gosh, we did it. Now how they did this without modern instruments is simply amazing. In a straight line, the distance from the Gihon spring to the Solon pools only a quarter of a mile. But because of the twists and turns, it's a half a mile. Now the average width of that tunnel is about two feet. And it's about six feet high along most of its course. And this final water system is what feeds the newly discovered and very large pool of Siloam that we read about in the New Testament. Now I've been in both the Canaanite tunnel and the Hezekiah's tunnel and it's not for the faint of heart. I don't like tight spots. But I can also tell you that the tunnels are amazing. And it's hard to imagine that they were built using the most primitive tools. The flow of water in the winter especially is substantial. And one can understand how a sizable city could grow from the from only the water that's supplied by this single spring, the Gion. Well, let's move now to the second focal point of this chapter. The words spoken to David and his army by the inhabitants of that walled fortress. Now, as big a mystery as how it was that, that, that David was able to use the water tunnel to get into Zion is the meaning behind the words of the residents of Zion who taunted David's army by saying that even the lame and the blind could fend you off. Thus, I don't think very many of your Bible translations, if you were to all get together and compare them, would agree with one another on this point. Um, And if we did some comparisons, we'd find slightly different meanings assigned to these words from version to version. Further, when we look down to verse 8, this passage ends with yet another statement about the lame and the blind that seems to be saying that David is disgusted and repelled by people who are lame and blind. So when the two statements about the lame and the blind of Yerushalayim are taken together, we get a mystery. 
The most popular assumption is that this is simply insulting words thrown at David by the Jebusite soldiers who are standing in their defensive positions atop the city walls. And that David's retort about him despising the lame and the blind is sarcasm thrown back at him. But another theory is that that lame and blind people were actually brought to the scene and lined up top these city walls and they hurled insults at David and thus David made it clear that when he entered the city he wasn't going to look upon them with mercy the way that you normally would expect a warrior to deal with very severely disabled people. Yet another approach is from the rabbis. Some rabbis say that the lame and the blind were pagan idols that the Jebusites placed upon the walls as as talisman to place a curse upon David and his troops. Rashi has another solution. He says that the inhabitants were descendants, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, of Zion rather, were descendants of Abimelech. And that the lame and the blind were two statues. One who symbolized Jacob, who was made lame in that all-night wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. And the other symbolizes Isaac, who became blind in his latter years and so was easily tricked by Jacob. Thus, David despises those statues and he plans on destroying them. And there's a few other theories that rely on Hittite mythology to solve this riddle. Now, some scholars just say that the text must be corrupt. So this is the reason we get this strange wording and unintelligible thought. But the Dead Sea Scrolls say essentially the same thing. So that would be kind of disingenuous. What are we to make of this issue with this strange emphasis on the lame and the blind? I think the problem can be solved by incorporating the biblical principle of progressive revelation. We need to look to the entire Bible and not just focus on this particular passage in isolation. Using the progressive revelation principle, let's remember who David presages, the Messiah. Whether one adheres to Judaism or Christianity, David is the model or type of the future Messiah. And in both religions, the Messiah must come from David's line. So I see this issue about the lame and the blind in the same light as we see some of David's psalms as prophetic and messianic. Not until we have the New Testament does the key to unlock the mystery of these words spoken in 2 Samuel 5 finally appear. Listen to this passage from Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6. Yeshua answered, Go and tell Yochanan, John, 
What you are hearing and seeing, the blind are seeing again, the lame are walking, people with sarat are being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised, the good news is being told to the poor, and how blessed is anyone not offended by me. And then later in Matthew 15.31, The people were amazed as they saw mute people speaking, crippled people cured, the lame walking and blind people seeing. And they said a barakah, praise, made a praise to the God of Israel. I think it's hard not to see a connection to David's descendant Yeshua triumphantly entering into Jerusalem and healing the lame and the blind. In 2 Samuel 5, I see... The people of Jerusalem saying to David on one level and to Messiah on another level that unless you're the one who can heal the lame and the blind, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome to come into Jerusalem. You're not welcome to come into Jerusalem. And the response of both David and Messiah is that they despise the blindness of and lameness that has harmed these people. In other words, where so many translators have David saying that he despises lame and blind people, which is rather out of character for God's anointed, what we really have is David saying that he despises the condition of lameness and blindness itself. And so when Jesus speaks in Matthew eleven six and says, How blessed is anyone, and he's speaking to residents of Jerusalem, that's not offended by me, and he's referring to the lame and the blind. See, this all fits hand in glove with David's response to the people of Jerusalem in Second Samuel chapter five, verse eight. In any case, David conquers Zion. And we learn that he set about to expand the city. And his first step was to start building at the terraced area at the north end of the city, just outside the city walls. Called the Milo at the time, in later times known as the Ophel. Homes were built in this this open area that lay between the city of David and the crest of the hill known as Mount Moriah where the temple would be constructed someday. Well, in time, the walls of the city of David were added on to to encompass and incorporate this new housing area into David's compound. But verse 10 now, after all this history, re-centers this entire narrative by reminding the listeners that David's success was actually Yehovah's doing. David was merely a participant. David grew greater because God was faithful to his word for his own name's sake and David sees and acknowledges that. I believe that this is the key to all godly success in life. 
act in cooperation with the Lord and then give Him all the glory. Because whatever victories that come will be His. In my six decades on this earth, I've known and observed many good people who have worked hard, made sound judgments, but things just never worked out for them. And substantially more often than not, when things were on the upswing in their lives, they credited their own wisdom and hard work is the reason for this. David knew that his own hard work and courage were definitely needed to become king and to rule God's kingdom as king. But the results were dependent upon the Lord. And that's the same attitude that a worshiper of the God of Israel needs to approach life. Next we hear that David said about building a palace for himself. King Hiram of Zor sent cedar logs, we're told, along with a specially skilled craftsman to David to aid in constructing a proper palace for a king. Now, Zor is another name for Tyre, the capital of Phoenicia. Now, while the story seems to make the construction of David's palace a nearly immediate event after conquering Zion, in fact, it must have happened later in David's reign. It's not at all unusual, by the way, in Scripture for events to be placed in an order that just doesn't have regard to proper proportions of time. We know that David reigned until about 960 B.C., but we also know that King Hiram didn't begin his reign over Phoenicia until about 970 B.C. So somewhere in between those two dates is when this palace construction begins. Now the cedars of Lebanon are proverbial because cedar was such an admired and valuable wood. Cedar was as beautiful as it was durable. And if you'll take a look here, in our country, cedars don't generally grow this big. They're smaller. Over there, they're big trees. It was strong enough to be used for load-bearing. It was lovely enough to be used for exquisite interior paneling. As early as 3000 B.C., Cedar was being exported from Phoenicia to Egypt. So prized for this wood's qualities. Cedar wood was in such demand that by the time of David, the cedar forests were nearly depleted. And thus it became a precious commodity that was reserved for only the wealthiest aristocrats and kings. This passage implies that David must have had a good relationship with the Phoenicians. No doubt it served an economic purpose that was mutually beneficial. Phoenicia lay along the Mediterranean coast. The Phoenicians were seafarers. They were merchants. But a people who rely on shipping and trading for their economy need need goods to sell. Wine and olive oil produced in Israel was highly prized. And so it made sense for Israel to ally with Phoenicia. Now verse 16 adds to the overall picture 
of what occurred once David acquired his new capital city. Once he was settled in the city of David, David moved his harem from Hebron to Jerusalem, and then he even added to it with more wives and concubines. Now let me remind you that a concubine was not a, a sex slave or a plaything for the man. Rather, she was like a wife, but she usually didn't have a marriage document, so she was sort of a second-class wife. Now, a concubine, especially in the case of kings, was often the handmaiden of an aristocratic woman that the king would marry to create a needed or a wanted political alliance with another king or, or potentate. The list of names of David's sons represents only the firstborns, firstborn sons from each of these mothers. Many daughters and other sons were born as well to these women. David was creating quite a dynasty of loyal leaders for his administration through these women. But what of David's jilted friends, the Philistines? Up to now, the Philistines had not deemed David to be a threat to them. And this was due primarily to the strong relationship he had established with Achish, king of Gath, when David was a guest in Philistine territory and he lived in Ziklag. They apparently looked upon him as a trusted vassal when he left Philistia to return to Judah. And no doubt David let them continue in that fiction because as he was consolidating his power over Israel, the last thing he needed was a confrontation with the Philistines to confront him. Now being made king over Judah would have raised the eyebrows among the five Philistine lords. But being crowned king over Israel, well, that removed any pretense of vassal status. It vanished. So the Philistines attacked. Was it to punish David for what in their eyes was rebellion? Yeah, probably that was at the heart of it. But it was undoubtedly also to keep David from achieving this full political unity of all the Israelite tribes and clans that Saul had never been able to achieve. See, Philistia desired to keep Israel destabilized. A united Israel was a much bigger threat than an on-again, off-again coalition of tribes. A united Israel was not likely to be so, so easy to lord over as a fractured Israel. Well, when David heard that the Philistines were coming for him, he removed himself to a place that it just refers to as the stronghold. The stronghold was certainly not the city of David, even though the place was termed a stronghold. It is self-evident that this particular stronghold was somewhere else. And the most logical place is, is that it was the one that David had used so many times in years past. Adulam, or specifically the cave at Adulam. Was David fleeing for his life from the Philistines? Probably not. More likely, he was simply 
and intentionally drawing them away from his family and from his private estate to a place that he knew so well from a strategic battle standpoint. Not only that, but certainly not all the tribes would have been keen to fight the Philistines in order to defend King David's private estate, the city of David. In fact, after David inquires of Jehovah through the Urim and Tumim stones about how he should proceed, the Philistines set up camp in the Rephaim Valley, which stretches along this direction, follows this, this riverbed here which is southwest of Jerusalem, And then David takes his army and goes to a place called Baal Pratzim, which means the Lord of Breaking Through. And he defeats them there. Now here's a question for you. Why would Hebrews incorporate the name Baal to commemorate a great military victory? Let me point out that in an earlier lesson I explained that the term Baal means Lord when used generically, even though it is also used as a formal name of a Canaanite god. It's very similar to the word Adonai that generically means Lord or Master. And it's used that way sometimes. And yet, it's also a well-known title that the Hebrews commonly use to refer to God, to Yehovah. By David's day, the word Baal, little b, Baal, apparently had been adopted into the Hebrew language. And it simply meant Lord, as in Master. It was not meant to indicate a pagan deity. So the name Baal Pratzim was not at all about honoring the Canaanite god Baal. See, the use of the name Baal in this context gives us a good opportunity to pause now and back away from this episode and take a look at the bigger picture of the condition of Israel and their relationship to Yehovah. Now while the use of the term Baal in the commemorative meaning of this mountain was undoubtedly not intended to honor the Canaanite God, the problem is this was just another subtle step in the perversion of the true Hebrew religion as defined by God through Moses on Mount Sinai. The term Baal has evolved from being entirely identified with everything that God hated to simply a common word used by Hebrews in their everyday communications. You know, we have watched the Hebrews as the proverbial frog in the kettle slowly over decades and centuries integrate seemingly small and insignificant pagan observances and people and customs and words into their culture and into their worship practice. 
that as minuscule and as unimportant as these changes were, they add up. And by the time of David, we hardly hear the mention of the word Torah or Moses or law anymore as we read through these scriptures. We rarely encounter those words. The constitution of God's kingdom, His divine regulations and commandments, had been infiltrated with traditions and common Middle Eastern social conventions to the point that other than for a few oddities, the Israelites were indistinguishable from any other Middle Eastern peoples. During David's ascent to the throne and during his reign, his focus was not to purify the religion. Rather, it was to unify the tribes into a powerful sovereign nation. David loved the Lord, but his hands were full and all of his faculties were aimed with with tunnel vision towards finishing what Joshua had started over 300 years earlier. So with Solomon in time taking over from David, and then this long line of various kings that followed them, the Hebrew religion became corrupted with paganism and social customs because the word of God was no longer their authority but rather it was man-made doctrines and traditions that ruled. In fact, it would be several hundred more years after David before a long-abandoned Torah scroll was discovered in a pile of rubble. It was brought to the king. It was read to him. And this king realized What had happened to Israel since that wonderful moment at Mount Sinai? King Josiah tore his clothes, we're told, in a sign of mourning and grief, and he ordered painful, sweeping reforms in his kingdom to bring back proper Torah understanding, proper worship, and therefore a restored relationship with Jehovah. It was the rediscovery of the Torah that brought about a true revival for Israel. I am convinced in all my being that we are living in such an age. If only we'll stand back far enough to recognize it. If Yeshua's church on earth is going to experience a true revival that we so desperately need, then it's only going to be from the church rediscovering the Torah and falling on our faces in grief and mourning and repentance just like that king. Sorry, regretful over our failure to heed God's instructions for all these years. 
let those who have an ear to listen hear. Verse 22 describes the second attempt now by the Philistines to reassert their control over David and Israel. Once more David consults with the Urim and Tumim, but this time the Lord instructs David not to make a frontal attack, but to circle around behind the Philistines. They're to wait in a grove of trees in hiding and only attack once they hear the sound of marching in the treetops. And the marching sound was to be David's indication that Jehovah had gone out ahead of him and defeated the Philistines. Most rabbis explain that the sound of marching in the treetop was of God's heavenly angels moving into battle and rustling the leaves of the trees on their way. I don't know if that's exactly the case, but I have no doubts that this is meant spiritually far more than physically. Wind rustles the leaves of trees and wind is often a biblical metaphor for a movement of God's Spirit. So while it may indeed have been God's angels going into battle against the evil spirits that fought for the Philistines or whether it was God's Spirit preparing the way for victory, it was Jehovah who won this battle ahead of David. David did what the Lord instructed and the Israelites achieved a great victory that day. The rule of the Philistines over Israel was broken after centuries of aggression and subjugation. We'll take up chapter 6 and the incredibly meaningful move of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem next week.